Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. And uh, before we start the show, I'm going to give a little bit of shout outs, a couple of links here and stuff I think you should be following. Um, if you're listening to the show at all, you, you will hear that uh, we do record at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles on Sunset Boulevard, right at the West Hollywood Hollywood line. And also you will know that I am the gallery director of La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And uh, my wife and I have just opened up uh, Gallery 30 South in Pasadena. And uh, you'll hear me talk a little bit about the Panic Collective, Panic with a K. So almost all those are at and their names. So um, at Gallery 30 South, and that's Gallery 30 South. Um, At Panic Collective, Panic with a K. At La Luz de Jesus. And this podcast, uh, Pod Sequentialism, is at PodSec, which is P-O-D-S-E-Q. And uh, now that you know what I'm up to and you can keep up with what I'm doing, I want to introduce a guest who I'm actually just meeting for the very first time that we have corresponded. And I got to say that Dave Baker has the best name for a drummer (laughs) that he could ever possibly have, but he's not a drummer. He is instead, of course, a self-publisher and he writes comics and we're going to really dig into that stuff. So um, I guess first, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You also have a podcast on, on the network. Yeah, yeah. I host It's Pronounced Zine. Yes, it's uh, which is Zine and DIY podcast where I talk to people about making stuff. Now, if you've listened to the very last episode of this podcast um, where I talked to um, Tevi Koo, who is also my assistant at the gallery, we talked about the, the new direction of zines and the importance of zines and Zine Fest and the um, Fine Art Book Fair, which has become kind of like the A-list of zines mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. fair for printed matter in New York and Los Angeles. And, of course, Zine Fest LA is coming up pretty soon. I just got my solicitation in the mail between last week and, and booking you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's zines are in the air right now. Mm-hmm. And has anybody ever pronounced it Zine? Yes. It happens every show. Really? And every show I go to, someone's like, uh, what's a Zine? And then I have to gently explain to them. And sometimes, depending on how grumpy I am, I, I explain to them very curtly that it's pronounced Zine. And and so you ask them if how many magazines they've subscribed to in their lives. Yeah. And, and you ask them if, if they produce um, graphic interfaces as GIFs or as GIFs. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. It, it's usually uh, older white people that don't know what it is. That's usually the demographic. Older white people invented zines. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying they did or they didn't. I'm just saying that's usually when at shows, it's like older white people who are like, what is a zine? <laughs> I can see how that would get so confusing. Th- this would be an amazing. We could do a whole topic on um, on mispronouncing uh, zine and um, and how that could affect uh, publication and the alt right. But we're not going to. <laughs> we're not going to. We're going to stay clear of that. Um, we're not going to have any remembrances for fake events today either. Right. But um, yeah. what we are going to talk about are Action Hospital, which totally fits into what we were talking about last week, and Suicide Forest, and Fuck Off Squad. There goes our, our explicit warning. Yep, yep. And uh, Teenage Switchblade, a fuck-off squad story. And um, looking at, um, I'm fascinated with Action Hospital because of the way that you've set this up. And I'm not going to steal your thunder. I'm going to let you tell everybody why I'm very excited about Action Hospital. <laughs> okay. Uh, Action Hospital is a comic that's kind of like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind meets Men in Black set in a hospital. Um, I write it all, and I draw one of the storylines, and um, there's probably somewhere between six and 11 other people who come and go and who are each paired with a specific character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whenever those characters show up, they're always drawn by the same person. That is the greatest single idea in in a, an ongoing comic endeavor, that 
having a bunch of stories, and then this is this is what I'm holding in my hands, and of course nobody can see this, but um, I'm holding a bound edition of Action Hospital, The Future is a Stranger Place, and it's it's thick. Yeah, it's like 250 pages. It's 18, 18 issues ranging from eight pages t- per issue to like 40-something pages this per issue. This is only 25 bucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this reminds me of like the old Dave Sims Cerebus phone books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, hopefully, I'm not as misogynist as him. <laughs> <laughs> someday, I'm going to have Dave Sim on the show, and it's going to be it's going to be incendiary <laughs> because he's one of the most important people when it comes to to self publishing. Oh, like, I maybe. Ad, un, undeniably, he's also a terrible human. This, but this where there we go. And I was going to say, just because we like what someone does, yeah, doesn't mean we have to like what they do. Yeah, and like everything that they do. Yeah, and um, with with Action Hospital, the idea of getting people that, and this must be kind of complicated. Like you, you, you're writing something, and you put a character into your script, and you maybe start drawing the rest of that script, and then the person that normally draws that character doesn't come through with the drawing. Oh man, you don't even know. You don't even know. Oh, I probably do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, honestly, uh, some issues took a little bit longer than others to get. Um, but it was pretty organic in terms of, uh, you know, there were multiple, like I kind of would make safety tiers where yeah. I'd be like, all right, this is probably going to be the next issue. Yeah. This will probably be the one after that. But if need be, I could swap could them on. and then just change this little bit here. Yeah. Uh, Add and an I, intro, change an outro. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I lettered the whole book. Mm-hmm. So whenever I would get pages from people, if a, a, a situation like that arised, mm-hmm. I would kind of do exactly what we're talking about, kind of like word surgery where, yeah. you know, kind of Stan Lee it for lack of a better term. <laughs> right. Yeah. Man, we're, we're going to really dig into some, some stuff that's going <laughs> to rustle some, ruffle some feathers, I can tell. The, um, that kind of exquisite corpse approach to doing a sequential publication and a, a periodical mm-hmm. um, is something that I think I've heard a lot of people talk about for a long time and they never make it past two issues. Yeah. So the fact that you've gotten this together for as long as you've gotten it together, I got to give you kudos right off the bat. But what's more important is that every time I see those kind of exquisite corpse comics, it's incredibly evident where one thing starts and the other thing stops. Mm-hmm. And your comic is pretty seamless that when you, you flip through and you see where where certain characters get placed in, that it's not incredibly jarring. It's It's like it really fits. It's kind of like taking Legos from one set and putting them into another set. And yeah. clearly there's two different mindsets between those two things, but they do work and they have a style. And so I imagine that must have played into why you selected the collaborators that you selected. I mean, I think the 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 first level of that is, is this person going to actually draw for me? Yeah. Like, so it doesn't even matter what they draw like, just like, oh, please, please <laughs> do this. And then this tier below that is like, okay, well then, you know, they always say that comics don't have a budget. Well, yeah. that's not true. They have a very definite budget. Yeah. It's just an emotional budget. Like, yeah. So it's it's kind of emotional currency. Like, mm-hmm. why won't they send me what I want them to? Yeah. Or even just like if you know that X person hates to draw cars or Y person right. hates to draw dinosaurs, don't give those people dinosaurs or cars to draw. Or Rob Liefeld in Hands and Feet. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there's and uh, the other collective that I was going to point to that um, that have been pretty successful in in conducting this forward is the Igloo Tornado guys mm-hmm. who do the Henry and Glenn comics. Yeah. But they don't jam in their individual yeah. strips like these are just strips that go side by side and and address different aspects of the characters but that's so. also i think a lot of i think that's tom specifically being yeah. like who is is down to fuck who's gonna come yeah. in here and do something cool and subversive 
and fit my sensibility. Like for yeah. yes, there's a lo- loads of people in those Henry and Glenn collections, but it's Tom running. Oh, he's that. the mastermind. He, yeah. He's the one running that ship. Yeah. And I think that's Tom Neely. Yes. Uh, and we, of the we, we should also give give a huge shout out to um, to Matt Gardaki, who was probably. Jin Stevens. It was probably his idea um, to to kind of. I think he's the guy that kicked off the idea of like, wouldn't it be great to do a comic in which, right. you know, um, this fictional version of Henry Rollins and this fictional version of of um, Glenn Danzig, Glenn Danzig were lovers. And I think that it because it was like three or four guys sitting around drinking, probably smoking pot. <laughs> don't sue me for libel. Yeah. Um, that, um, I don't think Tom would. Tom be like, yeah. Would. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. I, I'm not sure that Matt was smoking pot. He probably wasn't. But um, that, you know, that it grows out of this idea and you've got these guys that can execute quickly and they did. Mm-hmm. And so many people, and this should be a lesson to everybody, right? Everybody who wants to do comics who's listening to this, the lesson, the takeaway is this. When you have an idea with three or four of your buddies at a party and you're like, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if we did this? Start right there and then. Break out the paper and pencils, pass out the, you know, the, the sketchbooks and start right there and then. There's a much better chance that if you do, it will actually become something that gets published. And of course, if you don't do it, it never gets published. So you need generally speaking, one driver behind a project, and you are clearly the driver behind Action Hospital. And also, it's so funny you bring that up that way because we literally did that this week. Yeah. So I got uh, 11 other cartoonists and myself together with a party two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We're all talking about Watchmen and how terrible it is that DC is doing what they're doing, the Watchmen, put bring them in the standard DC universe. Ever. It's just... Uh, that's a, a separate, con- that's a oh separate God, conversation. Yeah. However, <laughs> we were talking about how amazing the book is mm-hmm. and how... Um, one of the cartoonists in our group, Nicole Gu, who uh, is my frequent collaborator on Fuck Off Squad and, and a bunch of other stuff, mm-hmm. uh, had never read it before. It just wasn't, you know, she came she came in through the manga door. She's young enough that it wasn't even relevant. Yeah, yeah. sure. I mean, I don't even know if that's necessarily true. It just it didn't connect with her. She never mm-hmm. found it, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so she had just read it recently, and so we were all talking about, like, how amazing it is. And she was saying specifically how amazing the compositions are yeah. and how Dave Gibbons just doesn't get any fucking credit like all of the compositional credit goes to alan moore which is so weird our, our very our second show was steve Bissett, mm. who i've known since i was you know 12 mm-hmm. and he talked about and without i mean and he's not a guy who grandstands and if, if you follow him you, you get the straight truth out of mm-hmm. him and he never oversells his contributions to things often will underplay them but that you understand that almost all the important parts of swamp thing were really Steve Bissett and John Tottlebin mm-hmm. in breathing to life the scripts that they were getting from Alan Moore, yeah. which meant the look of everything was on them. It wasn't yeah. on him. And he would give copious notes, but the notes were more like background on emotion sure. and not necessarily descriptors. Yeah. I've heard the same thing from Gary Leach mm-hmm. you know, in Miracle Man. He doesn't talk about it at all. Um, right. Gary Leach has been very quiet. That a lot of times the writer is seen as the auteur. Which is so bullshit. It's complete bullshit 99% of the time. And... Even when you've got someone like, and I've seen a lot of uh, Grant Morrison's um, scripts before they become mm-hmm. comics, and they're very, very detailed. But he would never be—he would never say, "I'm the guy that that did all of this." Yeah, you, not to Alan Moore's credit that Alan Moore is saying that he's the guy that did yeah, all these yeah, things. Yeah, he doesn't. But people, because he's such a luminary, nature, yeah, yes. that people are throwing this on them. But in Grant's case, he will disabuse them mm-hmm. of this idea that that he's this this 
mastermind guru that's doing all these things on his own and just has collaborators, whereas Al Moore just stays silent, doesn't say anything. Hmm. I think also just the fact that he has a fractured personal relationship with so many of his collaborators yeah. makes it difficult for him as an individual to kind of seed that. Yeah. Just in terms of extending the olive branch and not being Stan Lee and lying by yeah. omission and taking credit for shit he doesn't do. Right. But anyway, let's finish this first. <laughs> just Miller. really quick. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, let's, uh, so we're at a party. We're talking about Watchmen. Mm-hmm. And Nicole's like, yeah, I've been thinking about doing some studies of the Watchmen pages. And somehow it all, or she had posted on Instagram a, a couple studies she had done. So we were all talking about that. Mm-hmm. And um, it kind of spiraled into this joke where we would redraw the entirety of Watchmen but really bad, and we would call it Shitty Watchmen. Wow. And two weeks later, we all got together, and it's me and Malachi Ward and Robert Negretti and a bunch of kind of indie comics up-and-comers, for lack of a better term, Rachel mm-hmm. Dukes, um, Emily Vo, a bunch of people, and we redrew the entirety of Watchmen, super shitty, with only one word per balloon, and we just sent it off to print. And so it's exactly what you're talking about of, like, this dumb joke where we, I was just like, all right, and we're doing this in two weeks. <laughs> this is exactly what launched the the New York uh, downtown art scene. Mm-hmm. That same attitude, like I'm, I'm like almost shaking because I am so happy that you did this. <laughs> that to me, this is the epitome of how comics become fine art. That is a fine art project. Oh, it absolutely is. It opens with a quote from Alan Moore mm-hmm. that's it's from like four or five years ago where the quote, and I'm going to butcher it now because it's not in front of me, but it's basically, and... Which is perfect, Yeah, right, right exactly. You should butcher it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they had this contract where we could own our own work after it went out of print. Needless to say, that didn't happen. Yeah. And that's like the first page of the book, and then we redrew the entirety of Watchmen really oh bad. Oh, God, I love it. I love yeah. it. I um, mean, and you have, how how many pages is it? Uh, three hundred and seventy something. I don't know. Did you use standard uh, comic board or was it? No, smaller? no. Everybody, everybody did. Um, it, it everybody kind of did their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the only rules for the project were, uh, you redraw it bad. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do the supplemental pages. We're only going to do sequentials. Right. And try to keep it to maybe less than the words that are in the actual balloons. Yeah. That being said, Malachi Ward, who did Ancestor for, through Image, and mm-hmm. he's done a bunch of really great stuff like uh, from now on, and he'd back up some profit. Mm-hmm. His way of doing it is so funny that I wish I had done his. He took the original Watchmen pages, I think he had did issue seven or eight, mm-hmm. and he scanned all the pages and then deleted the artwork but left the original word balloons, panel borders, and words and just redrew the art. Wow. Which is super weird. It's super yeah. weird to see. Um, I kind of want to do a whole project just like that now because we were just talking about how artists don't get any of the credit, right? Yeah. And let's just say... Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo is Batman because mm-hmm. he's Greg Capullo has been very vocal about how artists don't get any credit. Right, It'd be really cool to take the Court of Owls or one of those seminal Batman arcs and delete all of his artwork and draw really bad versions of his artwork, so people could appreciate it. Like how amazing yeah. Greg Capullo is. And another thing which is interesting that people who buy original comic book art now, mm-hmm. none of those pages have any of the words on them. Oh, yeah. That's all digitally put oh, back yes. in. So, mm-hmm. like, when, when I set up the pop sequentialism show, the, the, the art show that kind of caused this by proxy, <laughs> by proxy <laughs> war, um, this, this podcast to happen, um, it was an exhibition of 
what I thought were the best writer-artist collaborations of the past 25 years at that point. So it was 2011. So it starts with Watchmen, and I had a Watchmen color-proof page from the digital um, um, remaster. Mm-hmm. And it's the only color page that's in the show, and everything else is the original pencils and inks or just pencils um, or um, collections where you have the blue line printout and then the inked blue line printout as a set, so you can sure. see those together. And we um, we publish the catalog. When you're t- talking to fine art crowd, which is what this was a fine art show, you have to describe like why is this page important. Where normally, if I put a piece of uh, if I put a painting on the wall, you have a little tag and it just says artist name, title. Maybe it has the dimensions, even though it's on the wall. Mm-hmm. You know the medium, what kind of paint or whatever it was done with, and the price. Mm-hmm. Well, with comic art, you have to describe what characters are on the page, why it's important, what issue it's, what title it's from, what issue it's from, what story arc it's from. Um, the writer, the artist, the anchor, the letterer, if if if, right. if it's lettering on the page. Sure. And then a big description of why these are important, why, why it's important that it's a collaboration between these people, um, why this particular story is of more importance than any other story, and how they all relate together. And when I had had put together these descriptions, I realized I'd written 80 pages and I was going to be damned if that was just going to go up online and I published it, you know, and um, and it went out as a Lelou's Day Zeus Press, uh, you know, distributed through Last Gasp. But the the interesting thing about putting something together like that is that you realize how things have changed and how, you know, if you had comic book art pages from the 1970s well into the 1980s mostly, that – There'd be little word balloons that sometimes in the 70s written directly into the word balloon by the artist or that page was handed off by the artist to the actual letter. Then in the um, mid to late 80s um, and actually some of the late 70s, word balloons were cut out and pasted into place onto Mm -hmm. the page with like the cheapest glue possible and these (laughs) things always fall off and go missing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the pages, if you're not careful, don't have the original lettering. They're copies. It's okay. Um, and you know, you'd see that they would just leave a space for the title if it was a cover or they, or they would Xerox it and then it would get cut and put into place over the artwork they had produced. And now with everything being pieced together digitally and a lot of artwork being done digitally, original comic book art pages don't look the same. And so there's already this kind of shock to people who have never seen a contemporary comic book original art page when they're familiar with the work, like Saga will say, which is completely digitally produced. I don't even know what that original artwork looks like. If there is any original, I don't know if she has like sketches that she scans and then does everything else. My understanding of her workflow is that she works in Photoshop, period. Yeah, and that's it. So if you were to go back a little bit to maybe like, um, is it Chris Weston that did... The Filth. Yes. Yeah, so I have a lot of original pages from from him and from The Filth, and there's like little drawings that became other things that became photo stats that became assembled, and I have all the elements of the pages, and we sold, I think, page one or page two of The Filth, which is like the candy bars and the porn. Yeah. And um, and I kept him burying the cat, which I thought was amazing. The, um, the way that that transitions is like when you look at the original artwork, it doesn't match up exactly because – it's an element of combination. It's almost a, a collage of one person's work to produce it, but not as a collage artist. Yeah. As a, 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 uni, a unilateral type of artwork. Yeah. And so this idea that you talked about of having someone just erase and leave the word balloons in, again, fits in the absolute highest concept uh, art that, you know, Rauschenberg erasing the prints. Yep. You know, and having mm-hmm. those erase drawings that he had and Ed Rocher also playing with pulling some stuff out of the file cabinets. 
at uh, Ferris Gallery in La Cienega and kind of kicking off that post post war not quite pop 1960s right, right, LA right, right, art right. thing yeah and now these guys are really well known like Ed Rache was talking with somebody uh, early this morning about the fact that Ed Rache this text art guy because there's a text art show up at Barnsdall and uh, Panic Collective do a lot of text but they hadn't gotten their pieces back from a Houston museum in time to get to the Lamag show and like oh is there an Ed Rache and I was like no I was like probably because it's too expensive to insure for a municipal gallery. Mm. And then we were like, oh yeah, that's right. Ed Rocher's pieces are worth millions of dollars now. Hmm. And pinpointing that, that only happened about 20 years ago. Right, 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 right. So from my mouth to the zeitgeist here, <laughs> that this is an important project. I mean, I'm I'm curious. Are these pages for sale? Can I buy these pages? <laughs> I mean, everybody still has their original. I did, I did issues 1 and 12. So all I did mine all in... Um, in a moleskin. So mm-hmm. mine are basically just at repro, and we're, we're printing the book uh five and a half by eight and a half. Okay. So mine are basically just one five, to one, one yeah. to one, because I'm not trying to slavishly recreate <laughs> shitty drawings. Like most of my drawings were kind of like um, they were more gestural. They were kind mm-hmm. of like, all right, what's the basics of this? I also drew straight in pen, so yeah. I was kind of just like, all right, fuck it. Uh, done. Moving on. Yeah. Um, but everybody did something a little bit different. Um, it's really interesting too to see, like one of the guys, uh, Colby Bluth, who put together the book with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he he put it together. I was just kind of like, uh, yeah, maybe move that. Uh, I don't know. Fuck it. Yeah, that's great. Moving yeah. on. Do it. Yeah. Um, I have a podcast to host. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, he's really been a blessing though, because it's so funny when you get a group of people together where everybody. You know they're down to down for the cause. They're down to fuck. Yep. They're down to make the thing. Yep. And then after it's made, everybody's kind of like, yeah, okay, all right. Well, yeah, I don't really want to do any of the the hard work. The hard, yeah, that, that's that's work. I'm down to sit down and draw. But, I gotta yeah. scan this. Yeah. Just take it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean that, that's not me. It's like throwing shit at anybody. Like yeah. I get it. Like we all have projects. We all sure. have paying gigs. You know, doing that labor that's so unglamorous is yeah. like just laying out a PDF. Laying out a PDF. Woo. Yeah. Uh, but Colby, Colby fucking Jinx, buy me a coke. <laughs> <laughs> but Colby fucking murdered it though. He 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 took my cover and like even added a couple things to it. Made it really nice. Designed the book. We have a whole bunch of fake quotes on the back of the book um, from people. Like one of them's from. Or are the quotes real and just attributed arbitrarily? <laughs> That's my favorite thing to do. Is that you put a quote? When we did Panic Diaries. I grabbed quotes from all these famous people that are not about Panic Diaries. Yeah. Because I was only able to get one that I really liked, and I put that on the first one. And he yeah. was like, "The best opening line since Moby Dick," and that was actually about my book. Yeah. And then the rest are just like arbitrary quotes from like you know Jean-Paul Sartre and like you know Jodorowsky. <laughs> so it's kind of like you, it's sort of like a dishonest way of promoting something. Yeah. But you know, I, I love the idea of that. Yeah. One of the most of ours are like obviously jokey. Like yeah. one of them is like, um, it's the best adaptation of Watchmen. The best adaptation of Watchmen is shitty Watchmen. Alan Moore, but Alan Moore is spelled A L L E N M O R E. Like it, you know, it's it's dumb shit like that. Friends of mine did an acting class where they were like uh, Tom Hank. <laughs> yeah, Tom Hank was going to be an instructor of their act, their yeah. comedy troupe. Well, that's how they got Bill Murray to star as uh, what's his face, it's the cat, the comic cat. What the fuck is the name of Garfield? The Garfield. Yeah, yeah, because the the movie is written by somebody Cohen, but it's not one of the Cohen brothers. But the production oh company gosh. told him it was one of the Cohen brothers. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and he wanted to work with the Cohen brothers. Yeah, so he was like, "All right, fine, I'll voice this." Oh my god, the script is so bad. Why is the Cohen brothers are just what? 
uh, oh, it's not one of the Coen brothers? What's this H doing in there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. Um, well, this is, we're going to take a quick break right now and uh, and pay the bills. And when we get back, we're going to dive into um, more of this I mean, really exciting stuff. There's a lot. We're, we're going to go so off topic, I'm not going to say what the topic is. So um, don't go anywhere. Um, listen to one of our sponsors and to anybody listening that wants to reach this prime demographic, you can go ahead and send me an email at info at pop sequentialism.com. Um, you can also send, uh, you can reach us, reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, uh, send us a private message and uh, we'll get back to you. So without further ado, wait 60 seconds and, and listen to our wonderful voices again. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host Matt Kennedy, and we're talking to Dave Baker about some of the amazing things that he's coming up with um, as a self-publisher. <laughs> I don't know about amazing. I think they're amazing, <laughs> and I, I love it's a lot of really fine art, high concept ideas taken into the direction of the zine, which I think at this moment in time is the ultimate self-publishing fine art format. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that with printed matter, and we're seeing that in the in the um, the growth of the fine art. Um, book fair embracing and welcoming in a lot of um, zine publishers but also and we we were talking about this right before we went on air and it's funny because like I said we just met finally for the first time today and um, and so David sent me a PDF of some of the stuff and because I was constantly getting unsolicited large files from people I was blocking Dropbox and I hadn't seen them so I was just seeing this stuff now and I noticed that there's no publisher information on any of the stuff that you publish and I, I asked you, I was like, oh, you know, well, uh, have you done an imprint? And you told me. Yeah, I basically said that, uh, you know, I basically make stuff with Nicole. She's kind of my collaborator. Collaborator. She draws and I write for the most part. And then mm. I, I basically I just draw Action Hospital because it takes so fucking long. <laughs> uh, I'm in the middle of drawing Action Hospital issue 19 right now, which oh my is gosh. 250 pages, which is the exact same size as the first volume. Right. Which is uh, just me being like, wouldn't it be dumb? If, like, the second volume was just one issue as opposed to 18, that'd be hilarious. Um, so, yeah, but basically... Michelle Gu, G-O-U-X. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so, basically, the reason why we kind of opted not to do a publishing imprint is just because I have done this a couple times with various different people. And, you know, for whatever reason, you part ways, you know, you kind of stop working together again. And then there's just all these logistical things of, like... Well, do I get tables at shows under that name or under right. my name? Or? Yeah, like if, if you were to say ostensibly this is going to be, you know, Baker's Goods. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, that, yeah. that you have, you, you form the imprint and you form the imprint as an LLC with somebody else and that person goes away. Then you're in that exact same boat that we just discussed mm-hmm. of, you know, Alan Moore, Steve Bissett, John Toddleben, Rick Veach, when they did that um, 1964, 63, yeah. 63 comic for Image, mm-hmm. that they can't republish it because they need Alan Moore's permission to republish even though it's four guys who could if you if it was a board of directors yeah you would just put it out and you'd send somebody a royalty check and they need somebody they need alan moore to sign off on it for any publisher to do it yep and that puts you in a pickle and so what's great is that all of these have a very they've got a line look to a degree that they all fit that you would say oh of course it's the same company Mm -hmm. and they are and they aren't, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. but it's all you. And yeah, so yeah. this is a this is like for anybody who has been like agonizing as a self publisher about how to do things. Now I'm lining these things up on their on their sides and I'm looking <laughs> at their spines and they fit. I mean they really do have a consistent look to them. And 
by doing that, you, you don't risk if you if you do have a table and it's just going to be, you know, Dave Baker and friends that which is going to be you and whoever you can whoever yeah. with, whoever needed a free pass at Comic Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've <laughs> done know? that before. Yeah, of course, of course. Hey, yeah. I need to use the bathroom. Watch my table. Yeah, the um that it it fits and you have all these things that look like they're published by the same company, anyways. Yeah. And while we try to brand, you don't need to have a brand named a brand if the brand is the name of the creator. Sure. And I think also just in terms of like the equity in terms of branding, like mm-hmm. I want that the, the most amount of I want the most amount of money to be put back into my name as possible. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be the guy that is snow couch. Oh, yeah. that's Dave something. Uh, he does right. snow couch, snow couch. Like, no, I want my name so that then I can parlay that into Working in another medium or working, which I do. I'm a screenwriter. It's a day gig. Or I want to. Mason is right now on his phone trademarking Snow Couch. <laughs> so you might, you want to watch out for that. Right. Yeah. No, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I want at the end of the day, uh, for the, like, at this point, I'm very fortunate in mm-hmm. that the self publishing thing is kind of like a band where Nicole mm-hmm. and I um, have done enough shows and we have enough product and we make pins and stickers and books. Mm-hmm. Um, no fan art because yeah. fan art is the devil. Yeah. Um, Although I guess maybe you could, there's a there's a devil's advocate argument to be had that there's the a whole Watchmen... show there. There's a whole show. Well, that <laughs> that that is fan art. Yeah, uh, there is an argument for that, but I also think that it is a high concept project, and I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna stick by that because I I love the idea of it. It fits all the criteria of any of the tenets of any art movement that has been. That it it's almost a manifesto unto itself, and if you have a manifesto, you have a movement. Yeah. But um, I'm gonna we're gonna talk about this fan art thing for a second because and and this is definitely food for a whole show. But that um, if you're working in somebody else's characters, if you're not elevating that work by means of the appropriation to make it something else, then you it is fan art, even if you're a famous penciler. Mm-hmm. And I think that's wrong because someone else owns the copyright and they're not getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. And you are not changing, ostensibly, you're not changing it at all. Because the person who wants it wants it because they like the real thing mm-hmm. and they like your art and they want to cross these things. You know, your peanut butters and my chocolate. Now, I kind of like that idea in a way because it is your peanut butter and my chocolate, that it is two different things automatically, but that there has to be a crackdown. Like, how can you tell somebody on aisle 18 or, you know, M18 or whatever that they can't sell these, you know, bootleg videotapes? When over at Artist Alley, there's somebody drawing Wolverine as a girl. Yep. You know, and Mm -hmm. it's a really hard conversation to have. And then if they're making all this great art, eventually they're going to make a zine out of that. They're going to make like, they're going to self-publish a magazine or a book of their fan art featuring these other characters. And now they have to go out and check with Marvel or DC or Image or whoever to get permission, which is not going to be given. Yeah. And because then, it's not a yeah. an intellectual examination of their character. It's someone using their character to make money. So you then hit this other level of is it okay to sell a sketchbook that features predominantly somebody else's yeah. um, intellectual property? And by foregoing that and by mentioning that, and I thank you for mentioning that even though it's a segue, that um, that it's something for people to think about. And I'm probably going to get more email about this than I've gotten about anything. But um, thank you for that. Thank you for no, that. No, but honestly, as for somebody who, as somebody who, like, we did like forty something shows last year, thirty mm-hmm. something. We did a, a shitload of shows all yeah. across the country, and you know, you have to fly yourself, you have to put yourself up in a hotel, you yeah. have to pay for the table space, you have to eat, and I 
uh, I'm very fortunate at, at this point in time, we have enough product, enough bullshit that we're able to kind of, we don't make money. But you don't lose money. We don't lose money. Yeah. So like the, the. Except your time. Yeah, yeah, but that's yeah. okay because I don't want to be doing anything anyway. Right, right. I want to make gonna stuff. Golf? Yeah. yeah, fuck that noise. We're, 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 the Super Bowl is on right now. Yeah, my team, ostensibly, if I cared about such things, is in the Super Bowl because I'm from New England. My sisters are probably swearing at the TV set right now because <laughs> it's not on yet quite. Right, right. But I mean, sports ball is its own thing. Yeah, <laughs> I love I love that catch-all sports ball phrase yeah. that we use as sort of a pejorative. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it's like, what else are you gonna do? Like when you the the great thing about being a self publisher is and and the drawback is that you're doing something that you love it's making you money maybe but it's also like when you take time off you're taking time off from yourself and how do you find that balance yeah uh but it's fucking expensive to do shows it, it's it's super expensive and so far we've managed to not lose money like yeah. we we have basically we have like our business account where yeah. like nicole and i basically have a company together it's just a checking account yeah and that like all the money that we make goes into that checking account and that checking account pays for the plane tickets and the hotel yeah. and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, last year was amazing. We, this is the first time we like travel across the country to yeah. sell comics. It was wonderful. But as somebody who maybe either A, doesn't have a creative partner who is as dedicated mm-hmm. or who just doesn't want to work that hard yeah. or who doesn't have stories to tell. There are, yeah. there are people who don't have what I, the sickness that I have where everything turns into a story. <laughs> So, for someone like that, Do you have like a tape recorder right next to the shower. <laughs> you know, like... I have, I have, uh, I have multiple places for things like that. Yes, yes. I have a couple right different next sketchbooks. To the toilet, yeah. yeah, a couple different sketchbooks, and then there's a notepad in my phone that's like just filled with yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Um, but I get it. You know, as somebody who's just like, look, man, I want to be here. I love Superman. I want to draw Superman. Yeah. Um. I get it. Let's go to the flip side of that, though, too. I think, and of course, every court in America will probably, it's probably ruled against this idea, is that if Marvel hires me to do an X-Men comic and they give me a script that has all these big characters in it and they're hiring me to, to do that story, I should be able to do fan art at a convention of the characters that I just drew for Marvel mm-hmm. years after they no longer employ me. Mm. Because... The fans bought that comic, and if they're asking you to draw that character, you were why they read that comic if you right. did more than one issue. Right, right. And so I feel like that is something that can go back. And, you know, the way they handle rights in Japan and in England for music licensing is that all songs have the same value. And all, um, so when you pay publishing, if you put together a compilation of 25 songs, then what's interesting is that the retail value of that new medium assigns what the individual value is to the publisher. Mm. And then you have to multiply that to figure out how, how you can make any money at that. But that's why if you go to Amoeba or whatever, you know, giant music or media store that you go to, not necessarily your Amazons, but um, where you get parallel imported things that you can find amazing, you know, compilation videos of 1970s TV shows that feature music performances. It's all English issue or it's all Japanese issue. And they're more expensive because they have a flat right um, payment plan. Right. But it comes out because there's a model for it. Right. Whereas in the U.S., if you do a movie and you license a song from the Beach Boys and you license a song from the Doors and you license a song from Prince, a guy that wrote some indie hit that was recorded by some obscure psychedelic band can hold up the release of your movie by demanding more than you paid for the Beach Boys or right. you know Prince or whoever. And that's become a real hard balancing act because 
the publishing companies don't really even pay the artists. I mean, the money that they they'll chase people for playing a radio station in a business, you know, ASCAP and all these other places, and then the guys that wrote the songs get like a nickel, you know, for the aggregate of all their songs that they get. They get fifty cent checks. You're like, right. what the fuck? Because they're paying lawyers, you know, sure. to to do this collection. Well, I think that also just dovetails into how we view work for hire in the states. Yeah, and I don't I don't have the answers to this. Yeah. I don't have. Um, I don't have the solution. All I know is that right now there are t-shirts and video games and external sources of media that are utilizing, I'm not even talking about character royalties Mm -hmm. right now. I'm talking about literal Steve Ditko, John Romita Sr., Gene Colan, Mike Plug, you name it. They are literally making money off of that artwork, and I don't think... That in this day and age, you can say that comics is a production-oriented business. It's not. Mm. It's almost the same as like a, a movie actor's likeness. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Jim Lee always talks about how his faces are like a signature. He can do them in his sleep. Yeah. And you should get royalties for that. I'm yeah. not saying that it needs to be insane. I'm just saying current work-for-hire situations at large corporations that are going to exploit those drawings over multiple forms of media are not currently in a place that are even remotely morally okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's an interesting part of the conversation that doesn't get covered too often because people say, you have these these fans that <laughs> they apparently love the Avengers, but they apparently hate Jack Kirby. And it's kind of like, you know, obviously they weren't alive when Kirby was was doing everything at Marvel. Um, but he created these characters and their argument is like, well, you know what? He he signed a contract that gave the rights to Marvel and no he didn't. You know, yeah. <laughs> to be absolutely He signed the back of his check. Yeah, he signed the back of his check. There wasn't a a contract that said we're gonna own these characters for formats that you don't know about yet, mm-hmm. which now gets put into contracts, yep. but it certainly wasn't being put into contracts in nineteen sixty. Yeah. And so they're wrong. But then their argument is well, well during the original during the original artwork lawsuit he signed away yeah rights to get the original artwork back yeah and then got what like 17 pieces of artwork or some bullshit back well he got a lot of stuff but they kept a lot of stuff yeah. and i actually used to drive I, I would take the bus out to his house and look at the stuff that he had in stacks and buy stuff from him but the um the the really bullshit aspect of this is yeah they're still selling his drawings mm-hmm. of the Fantastic Four on T-shirts, on these mm-hmm. fancy, you know, like diamond dust decal shirts yeah. that have this kind of nostalgia, the ring T-shirts that they're putting out now, this kind of nostalgic thing. They're not doing that with someone redrawing the characters. And I mean, and if they were redrawing it in Kirby style, that is such an egregious bite on, on you know, like likeness and style that that should be something that would be paid for. Mm-hmm. But I think in this day and age, the idea that someone would, you know... This actually happened to Crystal Castles, who they said they found, I'm air quoting because so, no one can see this, they found an image of Madonna with a black eye that they then made their album cover and t-shirt. It was a Trevor Brown drawing. Trevor Brown is a published fine artist. Um, they didn't ask his permission. They didn't you know, go looking for him. But the idea, the audacity that they were like, well, I just found it online and I made a t-shirt and I made my album cover out of it is insulting to everybody already their age mm-hmm. and beyond. And yet it's happening in a capacity through corporations who are absolutely doing that. 
George Harrison, of course, sued Nike when they when they played Revolution as the theme song to the Nike Revolution sneaker. And like, we bought the publishing. He's like, yeah, you may have bought the publishing, but you didn't buy my version of the song with my guitar playing on it. And that, yeah. and they were like, oh, you know, and that that became or a real like thing. There was, there was a, a t-shirt company maybe like five, ten years ago who put out a t-shirt with Rihanna's face on it, mm-hmm. but they and they bought the rights to the photograph from the photographer, but not. Oh, the likeness, likeness rights, rights oh, that's which interesting. is which is a very strange pyramid, which I yeah. think is kind of analogous to the one we're talking about in comics, where yeah. like the company has the rights to the work for hire stuff that you do on the character, mm. but the actual way you depict them should be yours, and you should you know have sp- special limited rights in terms yeah. of anything. Anything, yeah, or or a flat rate payment that's set up across the business with business norms. The interesting thing about the Rihanna thing is that if she signed in her contract with the photographer, his ability to exploit that license in which any I, way that he he saw fit, which is what most photographer right. waivers have, then she doesn't really have any um, and my, bargain and with it. And my understanding is that they did not have that, uh, and that she then sued the t-shirt company and won, and it yeah. was like this crazy landmark. And then precedent. they had to sue the yes. photographer for selling. Yeah, wow. That's that's a big kettle of fish right there. Now, um, and of course, you completely forego that kettle of fish by producing your own work. <laughs> Unless you make t-shirts, I guess, yeah. of shitty Watchmen. Yeah, yeah, which we've talked about making pins. I don't yeah. know. We may, we may not. I kind of am waiting to see what, if there's going to be any fallout from it because yeah. when I made the fuck Stan Lee pin, I got... Oh, you made that. Yeah. I yeah. love that. Oh, thanks. We saw that at Kamikaze, and I was like, oh, that's that's the type of shit that we do. <laughs> like, that's the type of, you know, like, subversive thing that we do. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was there to do the the show with, with Gerard Way, and we, you know, we got the, the big grand ballroom, and we went on after Stan Lee and, and uh, Chris. And um, I had an opportunity to get my picture taken with Stan Lee and to shake his hand, and I couldn't do it. Like... I just felt like as much as I respect him as the greatest ambassador the comic books will ever have, you know, as a personality, as a kind of super fan, that what he did in his capacity as editor and quote-unquote co-writer was unforgivable. Big quote-unquote. Yeah, yeah. Was, was not something that I could support, and I would not take my picture with him and would not, you know, I didn't grandstand and be like, I'm not taking my picture with that thief. I just kind of decided, like, they asked, oh, would you like your picture taken with Stanley? And I was like, no, that's okay. And yeah. I kind of turned and walked away, and and um, and I don't fault anybody who who does want to do that, but that my personal interaction with, with Jack Kirby 25 years ago won't allow me to do that. Right. You know, and so the fact that I saw your pin at the show that used to be called, which was called Stan Lee's Los Angeles, you yeah. know, Comic Con, yeah. I thought was amazing. Well, also, there's two sides to that. One, the spe- the fact that I was at Stan Lee's Comic, whatever the fuck it's called, Kamikaze? Yeah. No, Com- Not Kamikaze La- Los Angeles Convention? It's fuck, I don't yeah, know, whatever Stan Lee's LA Comic Con. Thank yeah, you, yeah. yeah. Yeah, please, dear God, someone give us more money so we don't go bankrupt. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that show... Um, which I have so many stories about that show. That's another show. It's, it's a, we should do that on your show. Okay. I'll come on your show and we'll talk about that. And people will be like, oh my God. Yeah. But uh, I feel like it's almost like an obligation to go to that show because yeah. so many people that don't know, like, uh, you know, when when I posted it online, there's there were two camps of people. Yeah. People who thought it was hilarious and then people who wanted me to die in a fire. Yeah. And most of the people that wanted me to die in a fire 
um, who seem to all live on bleedingcool.com for somehow. <laughs> I don't know how this, they just all live there. Right. Uh, they were like, one, Stan did everything. He's fucking great. He's awesome. But also, everybody knows that there's like friction between him and Kirby. Come on, man. No, people don't know this. Yeah. They really don't. Like, I mean, Marvel's don't. Marvel just settled with the Kirby estate and basically um, justified our hesitation to crown, you know, uh, to take the crown from King Kirby and make it King Lee. Um, and uh, people who, who maybe don't understand what we're talking about, um, that it's been a pretty open secret for a very long time that is no longer a secret that has made it into many articles, which is now almost every article that mentions Stanley will now talk about the fact that everybody in the industry has copped to the fact that Stanley has oversold his role in creating every character that bears his name. Quote unquote creating. Yeah. And that um when you see the deadlines and the um how fast the work was being produced in its day, that even if you don't have, you know, the smoking gun of, you know, a a script written out by um Jack mailed to himself with a stamp on it and then that coming out published with Stanley's name on the dialogue understand that when he was drawing everything there was no script so the entire comic book was was being drawn without a script which means that the story was plotted by the artist and he would leave word balloons that then Stan could fill in later. And most of the time I'm sure you know this as have yes. you seen the artwork most of the time Jack wrote all the dialogue in the margins. Yes, so like you can 95% see ninety-five percent of the if time. If you see the un the pre-public published work and you see the pages in blue line and in pencil all around the entire surface area of the published comic art stuff that would get erased when it was photographed to be sent over to the colorist, um, you will see the dialogue of the characters written right there before it became lettered and, and made it into the comic book. So this is being produced at the same time that the artwork was being produced, um, and. This happened not just with Kirby, but with almost every single person who was doing comics at Marvel. And um, the first person to kind of to make us think about it was Steve Ditko. Steve Ditko supposedly burned his original um, artwork. I'm not sure if that's true. Um, his original Spider-Man stuff. I don't know. I, I tr- I've written to him multiple times, and every time he sent me a letter that was, leave me alone. Yeah. Like, I, I have three different letters from him, which are all varying degrees of leave me alone. Yeah. Which bummed me out so much. Yeah. I mean, I get it. He's crazy. I knew he was crazy going in, but I thought maybe there'd be just a random, like, 1% chance that he'd be like, he'd say anything that wasn't leave me alone. Yeah. The longest letter I got from him was three paragraphs where I asked him about the stuff he did at Charlton, because mm-hmm. um, I was reading a bunch of his, like, Enter the Ghostly Manor If You Dare, and, yeah. like, that the weird, like, horror anthology stuff he was doing in the 70s. And he, he republished that stuff himself, right? I'm not sure if he republished he's, it. Because he's been consistently I mean, producing I, he's, work he and makes, I things. buy all of his zines. Like, yeah. they're amazing. Yeah. Uh, his essays are batshit crazy, and I love them. Yeah. Uh, some of the comic stuff are, are actually really good. Yeah. Once you speak Ditko, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing. He has a specific voice. Yeah. Not even specific voice. This is riveting to me. Mm-hmm. In the same way that you were talking about the kind of intersection of fine art and comics, mm-hmm. Ditko, I think, in as an 84-year-old man, however the shit old he is, mm-hmm. I think is doing some of the most progressive, avant-garde, 
granted, progressive might be strange to use in this context because he's so crazy hard right wing. Yeah. But in terms of combining words and pictures, progressive avant-garde shit ever because the way he writes comics mm-hmm. is a dialect that only he really understands. They're like minimalist sentences. Yeah. He has his own sense, uh, his own like means of demarcation where like he won't write swear words, mm-hmm. so he'll write like asterisk hashtag or pound sign exclamation point and then like he denote i think they're supposed to be like gasps yeah he he puts these little like beep 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 i'm i don't know how to describe that right there's like (laughs) he's he's sort of like making lines with his fingers in the air but yes it's 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 i know what you're saying and yeah that 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 is really its own syntax well it's it's kind of like beat poetry almost it's not and it's not like when I, when you explain it out loud, the like the the pound sign exclamation point that sounds like how normal, like how yeah, like it, a, like what the the fake swear that we're used yes, to is, but it's not. It's not it's different. It's yeah. completely different. It's like an exclamation. It's just an exclamation point. Yeah. So if the sentence is like, "Oh my god, fucking look over there," it'd be, "Oh my god," and then a separate word balloon look, and then a separate word balloon exclamation point there. Yeah. Like, he, like, takes words out. The way he breaks it up, it's, like... super weird. The way... It's, like, the way Christopher Walken speaks. <laughs> like, it's... It's this kind of art form unto itself. Yeah. And, um... You know, it did go, too. You know, he's a guy that I think... He was one of Jerry Robinson's students when Jerry yeah, was, was teaching Jerry's at SVA. In, Jerry Robinson's like assistant for a while, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And um and that's when Jerry was had already, you know, kind of left doing DC comic work and was setting up early syndication for American stuff overseas, in American creator owned things overseas. So, you know, Jerry wasn't a guy that had to slave in comics because he had a ton of other streams of income coming in. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, I think uh, Steve and Quite a few of the other early creators, I think, um, Hulk, the guy that did Hulk, um, Herb maybe Trimpy? Herb Trimpy, and maybe yep. um, one of the guys that was doing Iron Man after a fashion. Mm. But like a lot of those early Marvel guys were all students of of Jerry Robinson's, and they became you know studio assistants. Yeah, and Steve, of course, being probably the most famous among them. But that guy is he's a fascinating character. I, I really hope that he opens himself up to somebody before he passes away. To um to have like a kind of linear history of of his life. I I want it just as much as you do. Yeah. I really don't think don't it'll think happen. It's gonna happen. If it does happen, it'll be like some nurse in a hospice yeah. somewhere who doesn't understand anything he's saying, and yeah. he's just she's just like I don't. All right, whatever. Yeah. Did you read Rosebud? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you read that that article? I forget if it was on Collider or or. It was somewhere like maybe last month, month before, the one where they talked about the. It's a pretty standard like a. It was around the time Doctor Strange came out, so uh-huh. it was like, oh, yeah, Steve Ditko doesn't get any credit. Oh, fuck Stan Lee, uh, whatever. This is what Doctor Strange is about. There's a movie coming out. I'm gonna go try and find him. Yeah. But the interesting thing about that article was the fact that the reporter went to his apartment building and talked to one of his neighbors, and one of his neighbors said that she accidentally got a check in, intended for Steve. That had like six figures on it. Yeah. Which is, if that's true, a complete revelation because he publicly has said, I don't get any money from those movies. I don't want their drug money. Yeah. And like, if he's actually taking that money, that makes me so happy. I don't think he's taking it. I think he's just keeping the checks. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, though, I think that, that he is, he's he's got stacks of checks that he's not going to cash. You really think so? Yeah. 
I think it's like Rocky Erickson, you know, when he became a postal service. Yeah. Um, he was a mailman, and he never delivered the mail. He wallpapered his apartment in it, and they charged him, you know, with the federal crime of of tampering with the mail, but he wasn't opening it. He, he wasn't technically stealing it. He was just delaying its delivery by gluing it to his walls. Um, I, I, I think that there's probably a lot of uncashed checks in Steve Ditko's apartment. Now, I have no, I have no better information than you yeah, do. Yeah. But something about what's that thing that Bill Maher does? You know, it's like I can't prove it, but oh, I know beyond right. a shadow of a doubt. I just really feel like that's who he is because if he was getting six million dollar checks, um, he'd probably move. Do you think so? I I kind of don't think he would. No. I kind of think a. I think there's a some. I don't know if it's subconscious, but I think there's some part of Steve Ditko that likes being bothered. Mm. Yeah, because people that. Sh- people show up every once in a while. People idiots like me write him letters. Yeah. He always writes back saying, "Don't write me anymore." Yeah, which you don't do if you don't in some on some level want that connection. Right. I don't think he has very many friends. I think he literally. I think he talks to Robin Snyder, yeah. and I think he talks to Ralph Macchio, yeah. and that's maybe it, maybe two or three other people. But like, I think there's a part of him that is so stuck in his ways and so steadfastly kind of tied to the mast of, uh, uh, what's the Ayn Rand? Objectivist theory. <laughs> Thank you. I, I blanked on it for a minute. If you hear me quote Ayn Rand on my own podcast, you know, hit me with a hammer. No, but you know what, you know what I mean, though. Like, I was just trying to think of the name <laughs> was, of it. It's like the Fountainhead? You yeah. Know, like, yeah. Um, you know, he's, but, so, uh, he's so tied to that that I don't think at 84, either he's going to have to start dating someone, yeah. which he's not going to do. Well, we should specify not the same Ralph Macchio that was the Karate Kid. The, <laughs> yeah, no. The no. editor at Marvel the Comics. The editor, at, the long time, yeah. the lifer at Marvel Comics yeah. who supposedly is one of three humans that Ditko actually likes. Wow. Um, and I I mean, I don't even really know what his the extent of his relationship is with Robin Snyder. It could right. just be that Robin shows up collects the pages, Xeroxes them into zines, and then mails them out. Maybe they're not even yeah. friends. I, I don't know anything about their relationship. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And yeah, of course, because Doctor Strange, you know, is, is in theaters. And, and the Disney um, approach to addressing controversy is interesting. Um, and I just heard, I think from, I think it was from Steve Bissett, that um, he had been talking to... Jim Starlin, mm-hmm. and Jim Starlin got a bigger check from DC. Yeah, from DC for the KG Beast, <laughs> which is who, like what? Who actually isn't even really in the movie? Yeah. It's like he's mentioned by name, but it's not yeah. the costume. It's, it's but it's the character. Yeah, he got a bigger check for that than he's gotten for any of the Infinity Gauntlet stuff that's happening at Marvel, which is weird to me. But what that says is that someone at DC is very smart. Someone at DC has realized that if news of this spreads that DC now becomes the better home for you to go create characters because they're going to take care of you later on. I mean, I'm not disagreeing that that's the thought process behind it, but I don't know how any sane person can look at how they're treating Alan Moore and think that. That well, that uh, Alan Moore is allowing that to happen. I think he I, likes to complain, too. I think I, he I, likes he to complain way abso- more than Steve Ditko. He absolutely does like yeah. to complain, but I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that Alan Moore is letting them use the 
he I mean there's that interview from five years ago where mm-hmm. they approached him to be a part of before Watchmen and he's they, they said we'll give you the yeah. rights to Watchmen back if you do before Watchmen or right. post Watchmen whatever the fuck you want to do Alan yeah. and he was like no fuck you yeah and then you know Dave Gibbons was like sure I'll approve it just give me that half a million dollars or quarter million dollars yeah. whatever it was which is like because he's a co-creator yeah yeah sure and I and I don't I don't you know, uh, Dave Gibbons is what Dave Gibbons is. Yeah. I, I, I think he doesn't get his fair share of credit in terms of the staggering achievement that is Watchmen. Mm-hmm. But also, he's a guy. He's in the industry. He's he's slugging it out. You know, mm-hmm. he's got a couple gems. Fucking give me liberty is an amazing book. Yeah, in spite of his his co creator in that, but um, he's also won his own awards doing his own stuff. Yeah, he won the best graphic novel not too long ago. Yeah, and he's done some other projects with um Mark Millar, I think. Yeah, and, Secret Service. Yeah, so I mean, obviously mm-hmm. that that's a big deal now, and there's a sequel to yeah. Kingsman, which I think was one of the better um comic book adaptations in mm-hmm. in recent years. But the um the interesting thing is that Disney usually have this idea like. Why aren't we just paying these people? Like they understand they have a cash machine, and it's like I would just ra- let's just pay somebody six six million dollars is a life changing amount to most people. If you give somebody six million dollars, just pay them and and just get them off your back. You know, give them a credit. You know, secure their legacy. We're making a lot of money in this. They understand that. Now it's not going to be. Maybe the degree that a rational person would want, but it's enough to ensure the movies get made so that there's there's money to spread around. Well, I think, but since the Kirby settlement, they've just got a strong arm on the work for higher precedence so hard. Because yeah. no, can you think of another possible Supreme Court case that could redefine work for hire in the states? It's either Kirby yeah. or Simon and Schuster, yeah, or. Bob Kane? I mean, fuck Bob Kane. He didn't create yeah, Batman. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, uh, well, he created Batman, but that's the only thing he created. Uh, he uh, he had a name. Bill Finger created Batman. Well, yeah. Well, he definitely created the Joker. Yeah, for real. Yeah. And Gotham City and the Bad Signal and yeah. Gordon. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the other pin I made. Is it the same? Yeah. Yeah, a little, little Bob Kane is a liar pin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get you back on that. Yeah. I've you know, done tons of shows on Jerry Robinson. Um, but the um, the interesting thing, though, is like, you know, uh, Bill Mantlo, is, is Bill Mantlo still alive? Is he yes, still in the unfortunately, hospital? Unfortunately, bless his heart, he's still alive. And um, I know that I think that people involved with the movie, not Disney, mm-hmm. have sent money to Bill Mantlo. Hmm. But that's, I mean, that's beautiful that that's happened. But it However, should be that's coming shameful. Com- yeah, yeah. Like, when they announced, right when Guardians was coming out, that they were like, Disney has arranged a private screening for Bill Mantlo yeah. on a portable DVD player from 10 years ago. Fuck you, Disney. <laughs> like, are you kidding? He's literally a living corpse. Yeah, he got hit by a car. Like, now, you he, can't... Was, he was riding his bike, and he got hit by a car, and he was in a coma for a really, really long time. Um, for those who don't know, Bill Mantlo created Rocket Raccoon. Rocket Raccoon, and basically created Rom the Space Knight too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, and probably a couple other characters at um, the ma- in the magazines. Or Marvel was doing the magazines, like Marvel Premiere, Marvel Preview. Also, um, I think he was a right one of the writers on like Savage Hulk. I think he was a writer in that uh, when when he went rampage. Yeah. Oh, yeah, rampaging Hulk. Sorry. Uh, yeah. The um and and he I think he might have with I think Bill might have done with Bill Sankiewicz the um what if the Hulk um went berserk mm. the the what if issue mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which may play into the next yeah. Thor movie yeah you know the Ragnarok movie seems to also be rampaging Hulk movie 
um, which hasn't really been getting out too much, but that's what I hear. And, um, you know, the, but I do think that he's going to be, he's not going to win. If, if he were to file a case, he wouldn't win because of the circumstance had changed at Marvel in the seventies from what it had been when Marvel was basically brand new, breaking away from timely romance comic place. And that people who had worked under the romance clause and as, as a different type of work for hire program, you know, that when um, Kirby was initiating the lawsuit years ago, he was like, here's my paycheck. Here's my office. You know, it's like, how is that, you know, a, a type of franchise work for hire. And then the definitions of that keep changing as the corporations keep arg- making a different argument to keep people's money. Yeah. And certainly DC was worse about that for a long time. Oh, yeah. But that um, the editor at DC, who actually just put together that amazing Tashin book for DC Comics a few years ago. Paul Levitz. Paul Levitz was one of the guys that ensured everybody got paid. Yeah. As, as big a thorn in the side of some of the creators as he was, he also made sure people got paid. He was also the one that made sure that they didn't make Watchmen sequels. And yeah. like, even though it's shitty that they exploited it the way they did and not giving the rights back, yeah. he made sure that it stayed the Citizen Kane of comics yeah. as opposed to head honchos who are currently in control right now and, and sadly Len Wein oof, capitulated and yeah. wrote the worst of the Watchmen books I didn't read any of those I, I literally will go to my grave never reading any of them I read them I read them and I, I reviewed them as uh, honestly as <laughs> as they deserved and um, I, I felt that some of them were were worthy contributions to that universe and the majority were not and the worst offender was in my opinion the Ozymandias book that Len Wein wrote, which was terribly written, and um, it was a disappointment primarily because Jay Lee did such a great job illustrating it. Yeah, I was just gonna say the Jay Lee stuff looks great though, and it's the worst written. And the um, you know the the we're not gonna get into it because that's a that's a completely whole different thing. But um, as we get back to topic, <laughs> <laughs> as we get back to you know th- these these are the tenets that kind of launched the zine scene mm-hmm. and um so you know wortham frederick wortham who had been the um the the enemy of comics in writing um selection of the innocent was a huge fan of zines mm-hmm. and was a huge fan of, of self-publishing and it turns out that his big bone to pick with with the comics industry was that it were these corporations that were churning out this bad product that was making um it was filling kids heads with junk and I think most people disagree with that and that his level of comparison was that he only uh, sought uh, studies of juvenile delinquent kids and didn't have a control group, but that he was very pro um, underground comics and zines. That, that being said, though, that's that opinion of being pro comics and zines came 30 years after the fact. That's when he was like an old man and was, kind of realized the error of his ways. 15 years. Okay, I apologize. 15 years yeah. later. That was that was a substantial amount of time. But he had written if you if you read the second book that he wrote which is the world of the world of zines that um that you can see that there is that same line of critical thinking and it, it doesn't excuse seduction of the innocent by any by any means, but it doesn't seem like he had an epiphany. It seemed like he's he's saying that no my problem has always been that it's with corporations and that whether you release stuff that is sexually explicit that that's that's a form of self-expression I think he also knew that those were were clearly not being marketed to kids right and that was part of his bone to pick but now you know 
there's all kinds of zines now. Like zines used to be kind of like, I think a lot of people would think of like the Tijuana Bible, you know, like the kind of um, parody comic that would have movie stars having sex, you mm-hmm. know, and, and which was kind of what launched the early underground comics in making comic book characters do that. You know, Rick Veach did the amazing uh, Peanuts a porn parody, which is what hilarious. Was the, what was the porn parody or pseudo not porn parody that that was about Mickey? It was like Mickey the Mouse. You know what I'm talking about? But, oh, with Mickey Rat. But yeah, this, yeah, 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 yeah. Who did that? I can't remember who did Mickey Rat. I think it was the guys who did the fabulous furry Freak Brothers. Someone's gonna call in and let us know. Yeah, I'm sure it's Rip Off Press or Last Gasp. But um, Wally Wood had done that poster mm. of the the yeah, Disney yeah, 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 orgy, yeah. Um, which he did not sign. That he gave to the guy that did Air Pirates. To make money to fund his lawsuit against Disney, right? And um, you know that that was a long lawsuit that basically came to a stalemate, and you know bankrupted him three times. But it must have cost Disney, you know, five hundred million dollars yeah. to wage a lawsuit for thirty years. Yeah. So um, they decided to not do that again. <laughs> you know, basically, it's <laughs> like we're not going to give attention to somebody by proxy of a lawsuit. And unless we really feel it's detrimental, we're just going to leave it alone because it proves that our work is iconic. Yeah. And, um, you know, that there's so many zines now that there are definitely like the kind of fan zines, which are people taking existing characters and, and making them their own by telling new stories, which, you know, is, is copyright infringement material. But um, it's also supplying a certain demand. In Japan, they're common. Yeah, Dojinshi are everywhere. Yeah, and it's it's sort of like there are entire comic book stores dedicated to just that type of fanboy love comic and you know the the sex comics, but um, that also it's it's considered an important part of the culture to fill that niche that the com- the companies themselves won't fill, and the companies like that there's fandom, so they don't go after it as a copyright infringement the way that we do in America. But that addresses again, you know, the the weird obsession we have with intellectual property in the United States. Mm-hmm. So. Um, what else have you got coming down the pike? So, uh, Shitty Watchmen, the proof should be here. I am so about that, dude. <laughs> it should be here this week, and I think we're going to debut it at Emerald City Comic Con mm-hmm. at the end of, or the beginning of March. I think mm-hmm. it's the first, like, literally March 2nd. I think and that's in Seattle. Day. Where are they having it this year? Uh, at the convention center there. The I don't know what the name of the convention center is. It's, it's the, the same, one in downtown. It's the same one they where the riots were during the um, Democratic convention a couple yes. years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll be there. I'll have a table there. We're selling. Actually, that no. Thing. It was the union organizers' uh, convention. Um, yeah. And then uh, the next book uh, that we're putting out, which hopefully we will also have at Emerald City, but if not, then we'll debut at WonderCon. Mm-hmm. Uh, is called Murders, mm-hmm. and uh, we just finished it. I'm super amped. It's taken us like eight months because the we made we made it in a completely different way. Where mm-hmm. we're making it. A, we're doing a Rizzo comic. I don't know if you know what Rizograph printing is. Um, no, what is Rizzo Comics? Oh, dude, you're, you're, you you would flip out over it. Okay, so it's right up your alley. All right, uh, a Rizograph machine is basically like this Japanese screen printing Xerox machine, mm-hmm. where basically you run a piece of paper through it one time and it prints a layer of color. You take that piece of paper out again and run it through again and it takes another layer of color. Wow! So people make these like crazy fine art objects out of comics, where that you usually do like three or four colored comics, right? Like, uh, this is my comic about um, uh, snow couch, and snow couch is an anthropomorphic couch. And I made 16-page comic, and I did it in four different colors, and each one of those colors is specifically like screen printed on there. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you have to charge a shitload of money for it because they're super hard to make. Yeah. But um, so we did one. 
Um, Mason's handing us the injunction against our use of, of snow couch. He's already, <laughs> the copyright already came in in the time that we've been talking. It's no! amazing. And on a Sunday. And on a Sunday. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So because of them, the, the, they, they feel so unique. They look yeah. – they have this really interesting hybrid of like – Analog and digital technology. Do you have one of these? Not on me, but but you you I, own I have, one. Yeah, I have a bunch of them. Oh, yeah, we, you got We got to do something at Gallery Thirty South. I mean, I, I want to do something that addresses just the high concept ideas that you're working with. But I love bringing that in and like having somebody. We'll do like an Eventbrite thing where people combine. They're like, let's look at this happen and let's talk about how this how these projects happen. And I mean, maybe we'll wallpaper the entire place <laughs> and the pages of, of Should You Watch, which yeah, is amazing. That'd be great. Uh, so our next book, uh, which we're doing, Risograph, mm-hmm. um, is uh, it's called Murders, and it's basically what if the Columbine uh, shooters were a group of kind of socially ostracized uh, and bullied teenage girls who gain access to black magic? Jesus, that's heavy. Yeah, so it's kind of about uh, you know the, the the social ecosystem that we have right now, yeah, gun rights, yeah, and also just like magic bullshit. Um, uh, there's a there's a really uh, there's a popular risograph pr- uh, publisher here in uh, Los Angeles called Tiny Splendor. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really nice guys and girls. They're nice people. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, they they were the ones who were originally like, you guys should do a Rizzo comic. And we were like, but that takes so much time. And they were like, no, you should do it. It'll be really fun. Yeah. And we started the process maybe like I don't know six months ago, eight months ago. I've seen. The kids at Art Center in their grad show sometimes produce some mm. some prints. I, uh, Mason pulled up some Risograph stuff on his phone, and we're looking at it. I'm like, I've absolutely seen this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're 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 this weird thing where they're kind of omnipresent, yeah. but n- they haven't quite like exploded yet. Right. Specifically because I think they're just there's a kind of wall to entry in terms of they're so time consuming to make yeah. that you have to charge. Like we're charging fifteen bucks for ours, and it's like a fifty page comic. So that's good. I mean, that's not that much. It's not that much, but also in the comics world, you know. But for, it's a, it's like a hand screen printed thing. I mean, it's its own art object. Abs- Fifteen dollars. Absolutely. That's fifty pages. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's worth it. I'm just talking about a general layman. Right. If a general. Well, I, don't I mean, know if it's, general, it's it's probably not for the general layman. The general layman. You yeah. Know, it's it's, but not, it's also about teenage girls murdering people with magic. So. <laughs> That all, <laughs> divisions of divisions. Yeah, yeah. But the, um, I, I love the idea of this, man. This, I'm, I'm so glad you came on the show. This has been like seriously an amazing conversation that I've, I've loved having. Um, and I mean, this is sort of indicative of the direction that I things are going creatively and with, with zines in general. But I mean, the, I think that also the face of zines as we know them has changed. That they're much more sophisticated now. It's just that the zine can be a catch-all, not just for the hand-stapled stuff, but for really, you know, sophisticatedly produced, uh, perfect-bound, you know, self-published books. I mean, I kind of, I kind of think of the Fuck Off Squad books as like big-budget zines. Yeah. Because you know, it's forty pages of comics. The first volume is forty pages of comics, an essay about Chris Claremont and his his writing caption mechanic and how that influenced the process of the book, and wow. then thirty pages of comics, and then an essay about Drake and how his production style with his producer Forty, mm-hmm. uh, how that kind of like minimalist aesthetic influenced the process of the book. Yeah. So and his medical condition, which plays into how, <laughs> how often they can they can record. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. See, you know right. these things. Yes. <laughs> um, Usually when I say anything about 40 or Drake to anyone, I get, like, eyebrows. They're like, what? 
No, no, it's it's a pretty amazing collaboration actually. Yeah. Which is so weird when you see like the braggadocious, you know, uh, style that he has. That that relationship with his producer is much more like Jimmy from DeGrassi. Yep. Than you know, like this, you know, um, so full of himself, you know, baller rapper type of guy. Mm-hmm. That I've I've always found that really rather endearing. Yeah, I agree, and I also just think that there's, you know, there's this quote that I say all the time from. 40 word Noah 40 Schlieb where he he says you know what sometimes the first take is the only take you need yeah and I think that that's totally fine especially when it comes to comics because people and I suffer from this too they tend to labor over the craft of producing an image and they really like my pages are really intense and like the the page I was working on last night has like 75 panels on it like there's I I'm one of those kind of people who just like, I love Jeff Darrell. I'm going to put in so yeah. many fucking dumb details that no one's going to notice. another cigarette. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think there's something to be said for the muscle memory act of drawing. Yeah. And how when you're a master like Kim Jong-ji or like insert whoever you want, mm-hmm. you know, it's not about construction lines, construction lines, rendering the nose, getting the highlight just right, doing mathematical equations to see where a three-light three source shadow would fall. Yeah. It's just about fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, and moving on. Yeah. And I think there's something really energetic and powerful about that, specifically in comics. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop droning on about okay. <laughs> Of course, that quote is something that, that uh, Stanley Kubrick clearly never heard, that sometimes the first take is all you need. Yeah. But um, this has definitely been a first take, and it's all we're going to need, and this is where <laughs> we're going to leave off. But I want to thank my guest again. You know, uh, Dave, this was amazing. Uh, Dave Baker, find his stuff. You know, whether you're, you pick up the Action Hospital, the Suicide Forest, the... Um, the fuck off squad, and of course the new shitty Watchmen, which I'm I've I cannot come out soon enough for me. I may follow you home, <laughs> and um you know tune in again as we say we we record here at at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, and there's certainly a lot of stuff going on here. Um, I mentioned in this interview um, Gallery 30 South, and the focus of that gallery is not um, the figurative narrative work that we do at, at La Luz de Jesus, in which we will continue to do, and I will continue to direct, but the, um, the much more high-concept stuff. And, and the idea was to find that, that happy space that um, connected more pensive, serious artwork with people who felt like it wasn't approachable. Mm. And so there will be opportunities, and I, I, I'm welcoming you to come in and, and have a conversation in the gallery setting about this to um, to expose and broaden the expectation of people that, um, you know, whether it's just, you know, the, the risograph stuff, it's like this sort of amazing new technology attitude towards screen printing, you know, that it makes it a little bit easier. It's time-consuming, but it makes it a little bit easier for people to make a handmade, hand-pulled print that you can do rapidly enough to produce and mass-produce things. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a, a good direction for my efforts moving forward, Not even and not even just with the gallery stuff, but I think even with the podcast, that we're going to try and, and bring in more elements of this type of interaction where it's like, hey, guys, we just talked about a bunch of stuff that you can do, like, right now. Mm-hmm. Like, you can you can not even turn the podcast off you can take it with you and start putting this stuff to use you know get on get on your 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 phone or your computer and and look at what we're talking about unless you're driving um and and figure it out like try these techniques and see what what you feel about it and give us your feedback and hopefully this becomes not just a conversation about the art but a focal point for the art that people listening to the show are going to produce right so um 
awesome show, man. I'm patting myself in the back. I'm, I, I can't say anything <laughs> else. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving right now. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.